Do you remember signing a yearbook, especially um, your senior year? And you, you hear it, you see the signatures always say, stay in touch. And you usually never do, right? Well, uh, 2011, a guy, a guy who was a close friend of mine who actually even went, when I went to college, we went to the same college and he lived across the street from me. And this is God's design. Um, his name was Eiley. You don't forget a name like that. And he's been a, it, we, were, we were friends in college and in high school, but um, I didn't, we, we kind of lost touch with each other. And I'm at a big conference, a meeting of students to worship Jesus called Passion Conference. And there's literally 60,000 people there. And we run into each other. And I said, Eiley, what are you doing here? And if you had known Eiley, and he was not the guy who you would think would be at a gathering of college students worshiping Jesus, but here's what had happened. God had been working mightily in Eiley's life, and he, he had, had found and remembered the, his faith, and he had come back to it. He had been converted as a kid, and he comes, he's come back to his faith, and we, meet, we see each other at Passion, and he is now working as a youth pastor, and it had just began doing that, and so we reconnected, and it was great. We swapped phone numbers again, because you know, you lose people's phone numbers. We swapped phone numbers. We hang out, and before long, he and I went on a conference together and up in, in Louisville to this thing called together for the gospel. And there's a certain amount of words that a man says every day, okay? There's only, you know, five, six. If you really like to talk, there's like 7,000. And so if, ladies, you probably know this, if he gets home and he's already used all of his words, you might get a grunt, okay? But when Eileen and I got together, there had been so many years that had passed between that, man. We just like chatting and talking and we talked so much. I don't think I talked for a week when I got back because we talked the whole time, catching up, seeing the grace of God in each other's lives. It was so good to talk, to, to see this friend that I had not seen for years, to reconnect with him, to see what God is doing in his life and hear about what God's been doing in my life. And it was great. And we just talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And so what we have here is an example of what Paul is doing in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. At, this, at the end of this book, he has a great love for these Philippian believers, but he's separated from them because he's in prison for the gospel because he was preaching the good news, and he's been writing this letter back to them, longing for them, loving them, wanting to see them, and at the end, he just kind of says a whole bunch of things to them, a kind of a shotgun blast of things that they need to have in their life and that their church body needs to have, given the fact of what's going on in their life situation. And so in looking at that, I want to tell you this. There's just kind of a, this last little bit of the book of Philippians is going to be a shotgun barrage of things he's calling us to as believers in Jesus. And so we pick up in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, and he says this, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, remember they're separated, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And I entreat Iodia, and I entreat Synthache, and that's my pronunciation of that, that's a tough one, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, companions, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And so we start, and this is four things, or four different things he calls us to think about. I'm going to go list them real quick for you, real quick. He says, first, stand firm. The second thing he says is, he says, 
agree with each other and help others learn to agree with each other. Then he talks about rejoicing in the Lord, and again, he says rejoice. And he says, let your reasonableness or moderation, graciousness, gentleness be known to everyone. So there's four things today that I think we need to see in our church body. And it's a way Paul's speaking to this church that he loves, and he wants to see this in this church. And we now, thousands of years later, sitting in Hartsville, Tennessee, we could take words from this and know what we need to, to be about, especially in times of difficulty. And in, in, in Philippians 4.1, that's where our first command comes, the first imperative that he gives us. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, we've been going with a group of guys through um, this how to study the Bible, okay? Now, there is a buzzword. If you were in that group, you would have seen it. It's the first word in the passage, therefore. When you see therefore in the Bible, you know what I have to ask? This is, this is kind of a dumb thing. I have to ask, what's the therefore, therefore, okay? There's something that it's there for. So you know what you do? If you see a therefore, immediately you should bump up to the section preceding it. You know why? It helps in context. Let me give you something. Have you ever sent a text message to somebody and it was a complete, and, and just a complete nice text? But they, like maybe you just sent back K, okay? Instead of like, okay, you just sent K. Okay, anybody do that? K, all right? Like you, I don't know who talks like K, all right? I send a K. All right. Depending on what the situation is, you can take that K and be like, oh, man, that was kind of a short response. What's up with them? You know you've done this. K? Or it could be like, okay. You know, because they could have meant it like, cause most of my okay is like, okay, okay, because that's just how I live. You know, hey, all right. If I, 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 in fact, if you get a text from me, it's usually like a winky face and a smile because that's usually what I'm doing, okay? All right, eh, all right, okay. And that's what my K means. But some K's me like, oh, jeez, I sent them this huge text message and all I got I was like, okay, all right? Context determines the meaning of those words, right? And taken out of context, you can make the K mean anything, Right? And so this has to be understood. Stand firm in what? See, if it's not in context, you can take this any way. The political left could take it, and you need to stand firm on your convictions of inclusion and everything, okay? The right could be, that's right, you stand firm and got to have the border wall, okay? That, those two things you can take out of context, and the Bible doesn't talk about those things. So we have to get it in context. I know belaboring the point, but it's very important that you see this. That therefore, why? Why should they stand firm in the faith? Because look at what's going on. If you go back in verse 20, he says, our, but our citizenship, of chapter 3, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about people who have turned away from the gospel to trust other things, especially religious laws and doing good things to get God's favor. He says, no, we trust in the finished work of Jesus. And remember this, when, when it seems like we have opposition, our citizenship, we are not, our home's not here, our home's in heaven. And you remember that, and it was bought and purchased in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his gracious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So he gets this. So then he says, therefore stand firm. 
Therefore, my beloved ones, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you need to stand firm. Don't be moved back. Why? Why should you stand firm on the faith once for all delivered? Why should you stand stand firm on Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life? Why should you stand firm on his words and on God's word as truth, even when the culture says that's really hard for you to believe that it's against what we think and against the spirit of the age? Why? It's because Jesus has given us a citizenship in heaven. We are no longer part of this world completely. We have a citizenship in heaven, and he is working to transform us, and one day he will transform us. Therefore, we have a greater hope than just being liked and accepted by this culture now. Therefore, my beloved brothers, he says to them, stand firm thus in the Lord. This is not a call to stand firm in every opinion you've had ever. This is a call to stand firm in the Lord. And you know what the Lord does? He works in our lives and he does change our our opinions and he changes our want-tos and he changes all those things about us by in being part of his new creation, his work in us that's called sanctification. So it's standing firm, not in your opinions. So many people think being a Christian is just being... (laughs) Firmly rooted in every opinion you've ever had. It's like, I will never back down from my opinion. And my, as a Christian, my job is to tell you my opinion as loud and as firmly as I can. And that means what it means to stand firm. No. That's to be a belligerent jerk. I mean, let's just, let's just call it what it is. No one who ever changes their mind according to the facts is called ignorant, Okay. No one who ever is willing to say, I have something that needs to be changed and worked on in me, that is the epitome of, of, of going against humility and pride. And the cross takes us to the place where we all of our hope is in Jesus. And we have no, no goodness of our own, but we are coming to him. And so the standing firm is in the Lord. It's in his promises. It's in his gospel. It's in, in taking the gospel. It's standing firm in the Lord, not standing firm in our opinions only, but standing firm in him. And he calls this church not to be swayed by the current controversy that's going on, to stand firm on the truth of God's word. Let's be clear. There is a misunderstanding out there that the Bible is difficult to understand and that there's all these interpretations and nobody can come to any sort of proper understanding of the Bible. Yes, there are certain areas that are hard to understand. Okay, go read the book of Leviticus. It's very confusing if you don't have a background. It's talking about all these laws and killing animals and, and, and talking about ritual uncleanliness, and it gets real weird. Go to the book of Revelation at the end of it. There's seven-headed dragons and a harlot riding on a beast, and there's horns, and there's, that, that's in there, okay? But that's the exception, not the rule. Most of the Bible is very clear. And there are differences amongst denominations, but let's be very clear. The Bible understood properly and read with using common sense rules of interpretation and interpreting a document is understood clearly. And to stand firm on the truth means to stand stand firm on what's been delivered to us. And it stands, we stand firm in a culture that's ever-changing. Went to the beach a couple of weeks ago. It was awesome. I love the beach. Went to um, Crescent Beach. It's just south of Saint. It's between St. Augustine and Daytona Beach. Now, here's the thing about when you go to the Atlantic side of the beach. It is flat. 
Okay, I'm from Panama City, Gulf Coast. It's got it's it's not flat. You, if you tried to drive on the powder white beaches on, on the Gulf Coast, your car would be stuck. But you can drive on the beach on the East Coast in Florida. And so what was really cool is we would go, we were standing in this place where we could walk out to the beach. And I don't know if you noticed, by every person that you add to your family, you increase the poundage of stuff you bring to the beach exponentially. We've got a trailer now that we take with us. I mean, like it beeps when it backs up. That's not true. I, but it's that big, all right? And we carry all this stuff and we set up our tent, you know. We got snack. It's like we're going on a safari, okay? Binoculars, I don't even know we brought them, okay? We're just bringing stuff out to the beach, all right? And we set it up. And you don't want to go in, right? You don't want to take all that stuff up when you go in for lunch. So we leave it out there and you're just like, all right, I'm praying nobody takes this or this doesn't blow away. And we got back out to the beach after lunch one day. The kids were totally astounded because we were really close to the water, and now the tide's gone out, and we're really far from the water. And they're like, Dad, somebody moved our stuff. <laughs> and I was like, son, the tides work like this, this you know, the moon, da, 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 you know. And so we had to tell him, he's like, that's pretty cool, yeah. And so the, sh- the tides come back and forth and back and forth. That is the world's opinion on things. It goes in and out and back and forth and in and out and back and forth. But the truth of God's word, it stands secure forever. The truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ. What Paul has been preaching, what he's in jail for in this letter, that it's Christ's finished work and not the works of the law that make us right with God. That never changes. His word is true. And let every man be found a liar, but God is true. And so that's why we should stand firm. You plant where you're supposed to be, and you let the tides go in and out. And some days you'll be real close to the culture, okay? And some days you're like, where's the horizon? And it'll be out that way, but the word of God is true and faithful. And he says to these believers, and we need it too, because we have to plant ourselves on the word of the Lord and nothing else. And let the tides go in and out. So he says to them, stand firm. And he has great affection for them. Next, he goes on to say, I entreat you. And he mentions these two, two ladies who have, I'm sure, beautiful names for the time, but not now, okay? Iodia and, and Synthache, and that, that's the best I got, okay? And he says to them to agree in the Lord. You know what that means? They're having issues. And then he goes on to say, yes, I, all, I ask you also, true companions, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are now in the book of life. So here's what's going on. Now, there are people that are mentioned one time in the Bible for good things. And there are people that are mentioned one time in the Bible for not so good things. How would you like it if your claim to fame, you're in the Bible, which is cool, but your claim to fame is you got words with another lady? That's not great. But you think about this. Paul doesn't mention people. If you look, you survey all of the New Testament liter- literature, he doesn't mention people, especially people who are um, at odds with one another by name very often. And these letters were to be meant to be read at the church. In fact, when they'd get together, the pastor of the church or some of the elders of the church would get up and they would read Paul's letter to the church. Can you imagine when they got to chapter 4? You got one lady sitting on this side. You got one lady sitting on this side. And they're mad at each other. And, he re- and they read this, and they're like, oh, no. 
<laughs> it's like watching daytime TV. You are not the father. Okay. I mean, that's it. Just it got brought up. And there's like a divide here, right? And so he brings it up. Now, first off, we note something about, he calls these, talks about these ladies and says something pretty impressive about them. He says this about them. He says, help these women. And then he says, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. And so they said, these ladies, they love God and they love to work for the gospel good. In fact, he, they have joined with Paul and this other guy named Clement. We don't know why his name's mentioned, but obviously people would have known him. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done a name drop, okay? He might have been one of the elders at the church, one of the pastors at the church, and he was trying to encourage them. He's, listen, he is, these ladies have worked together for the gospel. They have been doing God's work, trying to get the good news out, okay? So he says that about these ladies. And then secondly, he says that, that, they're, that they say that their name, in the end of verse 3, their names are written in the book of life, which is a way of saying they possess salvation. They are in God's book. They have believed in Christ. They have been, they have been made alive, regenerated. They now have salvation, and they work for the gospel, but now they're at odds. Now, here's the beauty of, of the New Testament and the Bible. We don't know why they were at odds. We do know the fact that he mentioned them by name, and they look, they got like one name, Okay. You know, um, it's like Beyonce, okay? Like Prince, like people that only go by one name. These people only went by one name. You know why that happened? Well, maybe their names were odd. I don't know. Uh, but also people would have known them in that church, so you wouldn't have had to say. Like if you say Amy at this church, there's like 70 Amy's, okay? All right? There's like a whole bunch of them. It's like the Amy Rose right here, okay? Um, you would have to do that. But they, these, pre- these people in particular were so well-known uh, in, in that community of faith that they just had one name, and they said it, and they knew who it was. And there was obviously some tension here. We don't know what the tension was about, but what does Paul inc- instruct the whole group to do? To help them agree. This goes beyond just being a personal matter at this point. See, I, I want to remind us yet again that fa- our faith is not to be lived out solo on our own. It's supposed to be lived out in a community. And sometimes we can be off and not even realize it. You know what I mean? We'd be doing something that we think is right, but everybody else can see like, man, this is getting out of hand. And so what does Paul call this church to do together? Mind your own business and let them sort it out. (laughs) No? Help them agree together. Help them come together. Why? Well, because They've labored, they love God and they've worked and they've, they've, they've shown their love by their deeds and their actions and working together for the good news of Jesus to go out. And their names are written in the book of life. They're going to spend eternity with each other. So let, let's work it out now. And there's a lot of work to do proceeding. There's a lot of work still to be done. So help them agree together. Work to, to be a peacemaker. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the peacemakers. Those who try to make peace, yes, try to get other people to be at peace with God through the gospel, but also peace, in our, peace here in our fellowship of believers. And so here's what I want you to ask. Are you a peacemaker or a troublemaker? Are you a peacemaker or a troublemaker? Now, if you've been a troublemaker, here's the good news. You don't have to live in troublemaker land. And every one of us, <laughs> that doesn't sound like a fun land to go to. I don't know why that came out of my mouth. You don't have to stay there. 
in the troublemaking area. And you don't even have to be defined by that. That's why we have redemption. That's why we have the mercies of the Lord being new every morning. Oh, it's good news. We can repent of our sins and turn and not be that anymore. And we can also seek to make peace and to try to make peace among people. Watch, watch how you talk. Watch what you say. Watch how you share your prayer request that could be gossip sessions. Watch how you do that because our words matter and we should be about preserving unity in the church. Now, I want to be very clear about this. Preserving unity does not mean letting sin go unnoticed, unconfronted, and unconfessed. Oftentimes, churches overlook sin for the sake of unity. No, that's just let, that's like saying, I got a tumor, but I don't want to deal with it because I might lose my hair and I have to go through all that problem. So I'm just going to let the tumor be here and we'll just do this stuff otherwise. Let's overlook it. Is that going to work out well? No. What we are talking about here is when there's legitimate disagreements or people get personality conflicts, which happen, and we're all being, being made in Christ's likeness. We're all in the process, okay? We've been justified by His grace through faith, but we're in the process of being made holy, and so sometimes we're not acting very holy. Sometimes God's, man, we're walking, we're in the Spirit, and sometimes we ain't. And we need those people in the church. So I want you to get this here. We have to be, and Paul calls us, not to mind our own business in the church, okay? And there's a level here. I'm not talking, you don't need to know everything about everyone. But there's a, when you see a disagreement, we are supposed to try to work it out and make peace with one another. And Paul is calling these ladies to do that. Because these ladies were apparently very important in the church and had worked very well in the church. We go on, he says, stand firm, help people agree, be peacemakers in your midst. And then he goes on in verse 4, and I told you, Philippians is the top 40 of the Bible. It's just playing the hits, okay? And so we got verse 4. You may have even sung this before. You might have seen this on a pillow or an afghan. You might have seen it on a poster. You might have seen it on a nice plaque. Or now what we're doing, we're painting it on barnwood and we're putting it in our house. Whatever. You might have seen this in a bookstore. And this is where he gets to. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. That's a command, and it's a command that means to continually do it. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. You ever heard that one before? If you haven't, there you go. This is one of the top 40 big things you hear. You see it on, on plaques and stuff and plates and go to the Christian bookstore. This is one I can do all things through Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Okay, there's some of the John 3, 16, I black, whatever you got to do. Those things right there, they, they, this is one of those like popular verses. And in context, we need to understand where the rejoicing is. Remember where he is? He's in prison. Prisons are not known for joy and rejoicing. <laughs> I mean, they're just not. Like, my little boy's getting to go to Disney World, not with us, we're doing something else, but we're sending him with Nana and Pop, and he's going to Disney World and SeaWorld on Tuesday. Okay, he's flying on an airplane, and he's going to get to go do that, which is pretty cool. That's known as the happiest place on earth. Who wants to go to Leavenworth? Hey, you guys want to go to, uh, you guys want to go to a prison? Happiest place on earth. No, it's bad news. Now, I understand 
Paul was probably under house arrest and probably wasn't at this point in a real prison, but still, being on house arrest can't be fun. Being under guard of someone else, not being able to do what you want to do, it is not a good situation. Awaiting trial, all that goes with that, not a good thing. He wants to be out spreading the gospel, doing missionary work, taking the good news of Jesus all around. He can't. God has sent this and has stopped the, stopped the motion here in this situation. So he is saying to this, and also it, he's saying this from a place of, of difficulty, and he's saying it to a people who are in the place of difficulty. You know what they got? They got two ladies who are prominent in the church fighting with one another. Not a good situation. Probably some awkward moments. Definitely some friction. Definitely some drama. Also, they got false teachers in there trying to get them to be circumcised and do all sorts of odd things, and that's weird. And that's going on in the church. And then they have sent out this, remember they had sent out that one messenger who had gone to Paul and he had become sick. And so there's been a lot of difficulty in the church. And so what does he say? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. If you're going to wait till your life is perfect to rejoice in the Lord, you'll never rejoice in the Lord. Secondly, I want you to see this here. Rejoicing in the Lord usually involves us trusting Him in the difficult times. And rejoicing in the Lord is something we're supposed to do always. And it's interesting. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. As long as you didn't, in case you didn't hear it. And again, I say rejoice. My little boy the other night was walking towards the road at Target. We said, Judson, stop walking towards the road. <laughs> stop for your, stop, 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 stop. And finally, you're like, huh? And you're like, dude, what? Why can't you hear me? Okay? Why would you say it again? It's emphasis. It wants you to know to rejoice in the Lord is what we're supposed to do. And, and it's supposed to be part of who we are as believers. And rejoicing in the Lord is something we do when it's the times are good and the times are bad. And it's something we have to practice and go towards. It's a command that we must go after. And sometimes we have to start, just keep there until our hearts feel the rejoicing too. We have to keep doing the acts of trying to rejoice. And so some of the ways we do that is we just need to be thankful we need to be thankful for what Jesus has done for us. And Paul's mentioned that there are people that are trying to get them to turn to doing the Jewish laws to be right with God. And what does he say? No, we are the circumcision because we have trusted in Jesus and his finished work. And here's the thing. He has not only saved us, but he's given us a new family, the church. Not only has he given us a new family, he's given us a hope that we have a citizenship that's in heaven and that this earth is not our ultimate destination, that there is more and that we have good, a good place in the presence of God waiting for us. Not only does he say that, but he says that the power that, that will transform us into Jesus' likeness is the power that God is using to sub submit the whole world to himself through Jesus. So God is powerfully working in us. Hear me. God is powerfully working in you, believer. You might not see it now. You might be in a season of sin, but turn. God is powerfully working. If, he, if you see your sin right now, that's God powerfully working in you. God is powerfully at work. He's given you these things, and so we should rejoice. Most of the time, the reason we don't rejoice is not because we don't have something to rejoice about because we're looking at the wrong thing. 
We're looking to our circumstances only for our rejoicing. We're looking to our family situation only for our rejoicing. We're looking for what's ahead of us, the fun things we get to do, and that being the basis of our rejoices. But you know things come and they go. But he says, what are we supposed to rejoice in? The Lord. And if you're having, if you're having a real, and there are seasons that we go through, it's hard to be joyful. It's one of the themes of this letter. If we're honest with you, sometimes you just, <laughs> your heart feels so cold. Your heart feels like this. When you wake up in the morning and you've had a real long night, you had to wake up earlier than you wanted to, maybe the kids got up or you had to go do something and you turn out of bed and you still, you feel stiff and sore and cold and you stumble into the area where your coffee setup is, whatever it looks like, and you go to, you get it warmed up, and you go to put coffee in it, and there is no coffee. Somebody needs to die. I mean, it's that bad. And it seems like nothing can warm you up. You just feel that dead. There might be a season that, that's like that. But oftentimes, I find when I've encountered seasons like that, it's because I am not thinking about the Lord and resting in his power and thinking about the good news and thinking about the things he's blessed me with. I'm thinking about the problems that are possessing my mind and not the faith and the goodness that I possess through Christ. And so we just need to be practicing rejoicing. So if, you, if you're a person who has got your, your, you're predisposed to be negative and to not think about joy and goodness and the things of the Lord have to fight harder than those of us who, who wake up in the morning and, it, and it's sunshine and rainbows. We all got a different fight of faith to fight, but we got to get in it, and we have power working inside of us, the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And we need to start rejoicing, and maybe that, what does that look like? It could be many things. It could be turning off the sports talk, which they argue about the same thing every day. And it makes you argumentative. So instead of turning on the sports talk, you turn on some worship. Or you turn on, I know some of you guys are listening to the Bible on you version. It'll just read the Bible to you, okay? I don't know if you can get that in traffic, but maybe you, you can follow along with it and you put that on. Maybe you do that, okay, instead of what you're doing. You turn off. You delete Fox News, CNN, anything that would just make you angry at the left or the right, the middle or the in-between. And you just need to take it off of there because you don't have to live angry. It's causing your soul problems. So you just need to get to a place of rejoicing. If you, and this is true, I've seen this in people's lives, if you, the first couple things you say to someone when you see it is, did you hear about the death? Did you hear about the hurricane? Did you hear about that? You need to delete your news app for a couple of days until you can rejoice before you talk about those things. We are a depressed people because we keep these things in our cycle all the time. Yes, you should pray about it. Yes, you should be informed. But do you know what? We should dwell on what is good and right and holy and righteous and pure. He's going to talk about that later. So rejoicing, you have to fight to rejoice. And when we do rejoice in the Lord and in the situations that are difficult, oh, we see him there. And that is the sweetest rejoicing. Some of the, the, the best worship times I ever had is when I was in some of my darkest moments. That's when you're not trying 
to be good or to try to fake it. You're just raw and real, and you rejoice that God would, would love you and that he still has a plan even when it seems like the whole world is broken down. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That is a command, by the way. And so let's fight for it. You're not going to rejoice unless you're fighting the fight of faith. Go after it. Verse 5 says, let your reasonableness, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, this word, there's a, if you read any transla- English translation of the Bible, you're going to see a different word here translated reasonableness. And that's a hard word to say. When you go home today, try to say reasonableness like five times fast. It's really hard. I've had to say it a bunch. So I apologize because it comes out like this. I'm not reasonableness, okay? <laughs> Let your reasonableness be known. To everyone. This could also be translated in other translations. The King James Version calls it moderation. The uh, Christian Standard Bible translates this word reasonableness as graciousness. In the NASB and the NIV, it says, in the NASB, it says gentle spirit. In the NIV, it, tran- it, it translates reasonableness as gentle. So there's a wide, wide range that this word can mean in the original language. And so here's what I think it means to convey. First off, it is a, it's a heart of graciousness and gentleness. Now, I don't know. Gentle is what we want tissues to be. Toilet paper. <laughs> right? <laughs> gentleness... If someone came up to me and said, you're just a gentle person, I'd be like, what? Okay. I don't know if I want to be called gentle or gracious, but I think if we do it in context of what it could be. There's these two ladies fighting in the church. We go back to verse, verse uh, 3, 2 or 3. Let's see. Yeah, you got it right. Verses 2 and 3. These ladies are fighting, and some of our families or some of our relations, you know what it would be? I'm going to take her side, and I'm going to take her side, and we're gonna, you, got, you know what you need to do? You just need to tell her off. And I don't know if you've ever been in a church full of people who just tell each other off. It does not go well. You see what they were wearing? <laughs> And they beat each other with scripture. They got giant Bibles and they hit each other with them. That's not good. The gentleness and graciousness is to see the imperfections and the frailty and the sin in someone else and not to rejoice in that, but to rejoice in the good news of the gospel and to want to be gracious to people. What is gracious? It's giving them favor that they don't deserve. It's what God has done to us. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. A lot of us pat ourselves on the back for being merciful to other people. They deserve a kick in the head and to be run over by my car, but I'm not going to do that because I'm real spiritual. You know you've done that. Graciousness is to give them good things when they don't deserve it. And that's exactly what God has done in the work of Jesus. And he is asking that our gentleness, our willingness to bear with one another, our willingness to be gracious to other people, to not 
to not judge them and to beat them up, but to, to think the best about what God's doing in their life, to, to try to reach them, to, to see that they're made in the image of God, to let the gentleness of the church, the graciousness of the church, not that we let sin run amok, but that we try to look at other people in light of the fact that we are not perfect, but we have been saved, and we try to be gracious and kind and loving and gentle with each other. Gentleness understood here as as in opposed to being harsh with one another. Not to write us off, write, write the person off after the first offense, but to forgive 70 times 7. To, to love, to remember that we're not perfect either, and to not try to, ex, to exude a self-righteous sense, but know that all of our righteousness is in Jesus, and that I got a long way to go, and you got a long way to go, but let's follow Jesus together. And he says, let that be made known to everyone. If, if that's one of the things that I hope we are known for as a, as a body, is that we are full of grace. Not only do we believe the truth of the grace of God, that we can't be right on our own, but we have to trust in the gracious act of Jesus on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf, and that is our only hope and peace. That, But also that we remember that grace and we're gracious to other people because we don't deserve salvation. Therefore, we are full of grace. And he says, let it be known to everyone. Oh, God, make us more gracious with each other. Oh, God, make us more gracious with those outside of us. Oh, God, with those who are really difficult to be around. God, let us be gracious with them and love them. Oh, God, let us be those type of people and let it be known to everyone. Not that we're trying to show, hey, everybody, come see how gracious I am. But that it would just be something that we were known for. And then he says this, and here's where it ends, this section. It says, the Lord's at hand. The Lord's coming. There's a positive and there's a negative to the Lord coming, okay? There's a positive in the sense that, hey, we're going to be with God and he's going to make all things right. There's a negative that he's coming to judge, okay? And here I think if the image is towards the positive in the sense that we should be reasonable. And it's also, it's, it has a, a mind towards the negative. Well, Jesus is coming to judge. We need to be a lighthouse of grace in a world in which Jesus is coming and he's coming as a judge, we need to be the lighthouse of grace, to exemplify grace, to be gracious people. And so Paul is telling this group of people, stand firm. Don't be moved. Stand on the truth of the Lord. Agree with one another. Work to help each other agree because of our position in Jesus. Then he goes on and he reminds us to rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the good times. Rejoice in the bad times. Fight to rejoice. Take those things that are keeping you from joy. Kill those things and then walk in joy. And then he says to us, he says, let your gentleness and your graciousness, your reasonableness be known to everyone because the Lord is at hand and he is coming. And if the Lord's at hand. You know that it, it gives an urgency to life. Our life is ticking by. My, my little boy had his sixth birthday, man. I, I almost felt like playing cats in the cradle, like the whole day. Cats in the cradle in the silver spoon. Little boy blue with a man on them. Because I'm like, his time's going by. When are you coming home, Dad? I'll come home now. Okay? We can play now, man. Because I just had felt distant for a couple of months. Like when he'd play, I'd, I saw it as a burden. And, not, and the God was just, just wrecking my heart about, about how quickly life goes and how much I want to pour into him and love him. So he'll have a good image of what a heavenly father is like through my imperfect image. And so, man, it's just, just, just on, it's on me. And I just, it, when time passing by, kids are a marker. That's why I don't think time goes any faster when you got kids. You just got a marker for time. It's like marking on the wall their height. 
when you see them grow, that you know that's every year that's passed, every moment that's passed. And life is short. Jesus is coming. This world is short. Our life is a vapor. And so we have to go after God. Yes, we have eternity, but we have this life now, which we are called to holiness. We are called to stand firm. We are called to be missionaries. We are called to love people in the church and to help people agree in the church and have maintain a bond of unity in the church. And we are to rejoice in the Lord until our faith is sight and we get to rejoice in a level we've never rejoiced before. And we gotta we gotta keep doing this and keep showing grace because the Lord is at hand. And today it's there is a sense of urgency on this. And so here's what I want you to get: this urgency. This urgent scent is for you and for me. First off, the urgency is if you don't know Jesus, will you turn from your sins and trust him? Don't put it off. Trust the Lord. Turn from your sins and trust him. Put your faith in him. Tell him your sins. Turn from him. Turn, fr- turn from your sins. Turn to him. And then show that. Show what's happened in your life through baptism. We're going to have a moment, and I'm going to invite Joey to start coming up. And we're going to, if you have a time, if that's you at the end of the service, we're going to pray and have a time of prayer. At the end of the service, when we're, when we're dismissed, if you want to talk about a relationship with Jesus, man, I would love to talk to you about that. Secondly, there are some of us that, that we have let a, a spirit of, a critical spirit and a negativity and a bitterness towards life to creep in. And we need to hear today, rejoice. And there's an urgency for you not to live in irritability, in angst, in bitterness, but to lay those down at the foot of Jesus and say, I will rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I know it's been bad. I know it's been tough. But you don't call me to rejoice in just the good times. You call me to rejoice in everything. And I have a lot to be thankful for. And so some of you just need to lay that bitterness down and urgently step away from it to rejoice in the Lord. And there's any number of things. If, if you are here today and there is an ongoing sin in your life, there's an urgency. The Lord is at hand. Come. He is gracious and kind and long-suffering. He is loving. He is just. He is near to the brokenhearted. Come. Come. Urgently. The temptation is to say, man, I'm moved by God, but lunch is coming. We can't ruminate in the Spirit. I'm moved by God, but if I follow Him, it's going to change my life, and I'm not sure I'm ready for that. Don't stay where you are. There's an urgency. The Lord is at hand. You don't know how many more moments you have. Turn wherever you are. Turn from your sin and trust Christ. Turn from your bitterness and embrace rejoicing. Turn from from legalism and embrace graciousness. Turn from your sin and come to Christ. He's working in you. His power is at work. He is worth it. Turn and come. There's an urgency for that today. And so I don't know what God has said to you. He put something through his word that is directly for you today. And we're going to take a moment, and Joey's going to play, and we're just going to have a moment to marinate in what God has said. So if you bow your head, close your eyes, Joey's going to play. And whatever you got to do, whatever the urgent decision is, the urgent movement is, come to him and bring it to him.
Lord, we come to you today. We don't want to be the same as when we left. We, want to, we pray that your word would penetrate deeply in our hearts. And we would move from where we are to where you are. Often that involves repentance, God. Show us where we need to repent. Those who don't know you, Lord, we pray that, I pray that you bring new life in their life and they would repent of their sins and trust you and that they would walk in that truth. Lord, if they are in a place where they're anxious and scared about talking to, to a pastor, an elder, Tom or myself or someone else in this congregation about their faith, God, I pray that you would squelch that that fear and they would come and they would move today in the urgency because the Lord is at hand. Lord, there's many of us that are holding on to bitterness and pain and it's hard for us to rejoice. Lord, let us take that command seriously to rejoice in the Lord always and to fight for that. You're worthy of rejoicing. You've given us more than we can imagine, especially in Christ. We don't deserve any of the benefits that we have. Lord, let us be marked by graciousness. And in any way that is not gracious in us, Lord, would you help to squelch that crush it in us, Lord. We bow with open hands and open hearts saying, have your way. Have your way here in this body. Continue to work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We love you guys. We're thankful. If you would, we're going to stand and we're going to be dismissed with these words of God. Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Walk in his joy. You're dismissed.